Good morning, everybody. Hey, did you hear the big news? He is risen. Happy Easter, everyone. Yeah, we can clap over that. That's definitely clap-worthy. Hey, we're so excited you've joined us for worship this morning. I want to wish you a happy Easter. My name is Jason Carlson. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor here at Lakes Free. And today, we're going to have a great time together, praising the Lord, giving thanks for the hope that is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's going to be a great day, and I pray that you are blessed and that God is glorified as we come together to worship him. I'm going to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Let's just commit this service to the Lord, and then our worship team is going to lead us in some great worship today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be here today this Easter. We're so thankful for your amazing grace that we remembered on Good Friday, and, and today now, Lord, the hope of Easter. The, the hope of resurrection and, and new life and all of the promises that are ours because you, Jesus, conquered the grave. Lord, fill our hearts today with a spirit of worship. Fill our hearts with joy and enthusiasm and, and the abundant life that you give us. And we're so thankful, Jesus. We pray that you would be honored and glorified as we, your people, come to you to sing your praises today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It was still dark. I couldn't go. Not when it was light. I had so many tears. I was afraid I'd never stop crying. I brought the spices. He deserved a proper burial. I had so many questions. Why? What now? Was it all a lie? But there were no answers, so I just kept walking. Lock the door. I ordered him to lock it. I believed the lie, and now they're gonna kill me too. I denied him. God forgive me, I denied him. I was so afraid that if they found me, I would deny him again. I had imagined every scenario in my head. Perhaps the guards would help us roll away the stone. Maybe they would be kind and realize we just want to anoint the body of our Lord. That was wishful thinking, I know. The men who murdered him be kind? I thought maybe, maybe God would give me the strength to roll away the stone myself. Maybe they would just arrest me right there. Who else would want to anoint the body other than a professed follower? Maybe they wouldn't arrest me. Maybe they'd just kill me. But who would miss a prostitute? According to Jewish law, wasn't I already supposed to be dead? I drove myself crazy thinking I'd imagined every scenario in my head. But when I got to the gravesite, I realized I was wrong. I hadn't pictured this. I had given up everything, everything. And Jesus just stood there. I saw him raise Lazarus. With my own eyes, I saw Jesus do it. And he let himself be crucified. Why? None of it made any sense. It was as if the nightmare just wouldn't end. I started to cry out louder and louder. 
Who's taken him? Who's taken him? They've taken away the body of my Lord and I don't know where they've taken him. Please tell me, who's taken him? Alive? He was here and everyone saw him but me? I missed it. I was too late. I wasn't important enough. Guess I just wasn't the favorite disciple. Whatever. I don't believe it. No, I won't believe it. I was with John when the women came back from the tomb. What? Alive? Where? I ran to the grave, but he wasn't there. I didn't know what to think. I wanted to. I couldn't believe. I just didn't have the strength to believe anymore. I told them. I said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. In one desperate last breath, I asked the gardener, sir, please, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. It was then that the gardener turned around to me and said, Thomas. Peter. Mary, he said my name and I knew it was him. In that instant, everything changed. I touched his hands and his feet, and I believed. I, I believed. believed that he was really alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. I know. I know how to doubt. My Lord understands doubt, but I'm telling you this so you don't have to. I'm telling you the truth so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you can have life. He is alive.
Hey! 
Peter. Zurich. What a difference that empty tomb makes. What a hope we have today because Jesus has risen. Friends, it's a hope that literally changes everything. And this morning, I'm excited. I want to share with you today some of the great promises that are ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture was written by the Apostle Peter. Peter, one of those who were the first among Jesus' followers to discover that he has risen. Peter, <clears throat> writing in the letter of 1 Peter in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Uh, a short passage, but a passage just abounding with hope, overflowing with hope, and four tremendous promises that are ours because of the resurrection. Peter says this in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What an awesome passage. Three simple verses abounding in the promises of hope that are ours in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter reveals to us the, the hope that's available to each and every one of us this morning because of Easter. It's a hope founded on four great promises. Promises, friends, that can sustain us no matter what trials or challenges or tribulations we might face. Promises of hope because of Easter. I, I want to share these four promises with you this morning. And, and, and Peter begins and he tells us, number one, that the hope of Easter is a sovereign hope. It's a sovereign hope. Right at the outset of our passage, Peter begins by pointing us to the bedrock foundation of the Christian's hope. Friends, let me tell you this morning, if you're looking for a basis of hope, you want to find something that's sure. You, you want to find something that, that's stable, that, that's steady, that you can count on. A few years ago, my in-laws moved down to Georgia, and this past Christmas, my family and I had a chance to go down and, and visit them. They, they live in the southern end of the Appalachian Mountains in northern Georgia. When we were there visiting, I noticed something right away. Uh, many of the homes are built on the sides of hills there in the, in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, and because of that, the, these homes have strong, solid, concrete wall foundations, I mean, not like here where we have the cinder blocks. These are solid concrete wall foundations that go deep down into the bedrock. And I discovered why. Because in the winter when the rains and the storms come, 
the, the clay hillsides there in Georgia can quickly begin to erode as the rainwater comes down. Roads will wash away. Mudslides happen. And so when people are building their homes, they want those homes resting on the firm foundation of the bedrock. And you know something, friends, in the very same way, when the rains fall in our lives and what once looked like solid ground begins to slip away, you want to make sure that your hope is rooted in a firm foundation. And as Peter tells us this morning, there is no greater bedrock of hope than that offered by God. Here in verse 3, Peter opens up, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, Peter says. Here Peter reveals three powerful truths. In this simple statement, three powerful truths that can anchor the Christian's hope. Peter says, number one, we have a God. Number two, our God's mercy is great. And thirdly, Peter says through him, we can be born again. That is, we can experience new life, newness of life, because of what God has done for us. I, I want to come back and explain this a bit more in a moment, but first, let me ask you a question this morning. What is your basis for hope today? Have you ever thought about that? When, when you reflect on your life this morning, what is your basis of hope? Is your life grounded on a firm foundation today? Where do you turn when the storms of life begin to rage? See, friends, the hope of Easter is a true and certain hope. Why is that? It's because it's a sovereign hope. It's a hope that's offered to each and every one of us by our creator God. The Apostle John, echoing the words of Peter from our passage this morning, he explains our sovereign hope like this. In John chapter 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word. There he's speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Word. And the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. John jumps down a few verses later, verse 14, he says, And the word, Jesus, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does it mean, friends, when John says Jesus came full of grace and truth? Well, please understand this morning, this is, this is critically important. You see, as our creator, the one who made us, Jesus knows us better than anyone. He, he knows what we were made for. He, he knows what our needs are. And he knows 
how we can experience life in abundance as he intended us to experience it. And so because of this, Jesus came to reveal to us the truth. He wanted us to know the truth as our creator God. Now friends, as we all know, sometimes the truth hurts. Am I right? Sometimes the truth hurts. And when we look at what Jesus came to reveal, one of the fundamental truths that Jesus revealed to us really does hurt. It's not a pleasant truth. In fact, it's a, it's a truth that reveals to us that all of us are in a desperate predicament. You see, Jesus came to reveal that we have a fundamental problem as human beings. What is this problem? It's a spiritual sickness called sin. It's a spiritual disease that we all inherit at birth. And this spiritual illness that we have as men and women, it affects and compromises every single part of us. And no one here is immune to it. This, this sin sickness we're born with, it causes all kinds of devastation in our lives and in our world, but most significantly, it alienates us from our holy and perfect God. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans 3, 10 through 12, he describes our sin-sick condition like this. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Friends, this is our condition in the eyes of our creator God. Our holy, righteous, morally perfect God. Jesus, who created us, came to reveal the truth and one of the most significant truths we can understand from our Creator is just how desperate our condition is. We are born with this sin sickness, friends. It's a sin sickness that separates us from God and His righteousness and His holiness. Not only a, a separation in this life, but if left undealt with a separation that will lead to eternal separation from God forever. And our sin nature left unchecked, friends, not only separates us from God, but it leads us into a life of rebellion against him. A life of rebellion where instead of worshiping God and serving his interests as we were created to do, we end up worshiping ourselves and our self-interests. And friends, please understand, all of the challenges that we see in our world today, all of, the, all of the evils that we see on the news each night, all of these things can be traced back to this fundamental sin sickness that we're infected with. When you think of the selfishness, the racism, the lying, broken marriage vows, coveting, lust, cheating, on and on, friends, what is the cause of all these things? 
at the heart, the cause of these things is our sin and rebellion against God. We are rebels against God. Now, friends, that's the bad news. It's the truth, but, but it's hard truth. But you see, this is where the grace comes in. Remember, Jesus came full of grace and truth. This is where God's great mercy that Peter describes in our passage comes in. Because while the truth about our situation isn't good, God's grace is amazing. God's grace is amazing. Paul, the one who shared our desperate condition, also shared the hope of God's grace. One of the great passages in Scripture is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. The Apostle Paul here says, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is what Peter's talking about in our passage this morning. When, when Peter says that God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again, this is what Peter's talking about. God in his great mercy looked upon his creation, men and women that he made, that he loved, that he saw had fallen into alienation from him, separation from him because he is morally pure and perfect and holy and righteous and all of us have fallen short of that. There is no one righteous, no, not one. But God in his great mercy was not content to leave us stuck in this desperate condition. And so God made him, his son, his holy and righteous son, the prince of heaven. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. How did that happen? It happened when Jesus went to that cross, that first Good Friday. Jesus went to the cross and he bore our sin. He took it all upon himself. He paid the penalty that we deserve to pay for our rebellion against God. Jesus went to the cross and he nailed our sins to the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means God applies the shed blood of Jesus to our sins. God covers us in our unrighteousness with the beautiful, perfect blood of Jesus. He applies his righteousness to each and every one of us. And friends, this good news is available to all of us this morning, all of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ. You see, friends, this is why the hope of Easter is a sovereign hope. Because it's a hope rooted in God and his great mercy offered to us in the gift of Jesus Christ. Friends, I need to ask you this morning, have you received that gift? Do you possess the, the sovereign hope of Easter? 
Have you received the gift of God's mercy which allows you to be washed and cleansed and forgiven of all your sins so that Christ's righteousness is applied to you? So that you can know that your life is right with your holy creator God. Friends, there's nothing more significant than that. Jesus is the only remedy for our sin sickness. The second thing Peter tells us in our passage this morning, he goes on and he reveals to us that the hope of Easter, it's not only a sovereign hope, but it is a significant hope. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite movies when I was a kid was The Wizard of Oz. How many of you guys enjoyed The Wizard of Oz? I mean, some of us still watch it even to this day, right? I mean, 1939, Judy Garland, I mean, what a great movie. And if you recall the storyline of The Wizard of Oz, it revolves around Dorothy and her friends going on a series of adventures through the land of Oz as Dorothy is trying to make her way home to Kansas. Do you remember the storyline, right? And they're trying to get to The Wizard of Oz, thinking that the, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, Oz, great and powerful, that somehow he can help her return to Kansas. And so they finally make their way into The Wizard's Palace. And they enter into the wizard's chamber, and there as they enter into the wizard's chamber, they see a, a pillar of fire, and they see smoke, and they see lights blazing and blasting, and, and all of a sudden, the face of the wizard appears in the smoke, and in a booming voice, he declares, I am Oz, great and powerful, and Dorothy and her friends start pleading with the wizard to help, him, help them, and and their pleas continue to go unheard, and they're begging for the wizard's help. And all of a sudden, Dorothy's little dog, Toto, if you remember the scene, Dorothy's little dog, Toto, walks off to the side of the wizard's chamber, and there is a curtain. And Dorothy's dog, Toto, takes the curtain and slowly pulls the curtain away. And behind the curtain, we find this frail, kindly old man running these knobs and gadgets and gears and gizmos. And, and we discover that the Wizard of Oz was really just a big charade. It was just this old man projecting this image. There was no real significance to his power. He couldn't help anybody. And in the same way, friends, as we journey through life in this world, one of the sad realities that we quickly discover is that the things that we so often look to for hope, they can't ultimately satisfy. We, we look to things like our career, our, our relationships, money, sex, stuff, Right? If I just get more stuff or, or newer stuff or better stuff. We, we look to things like health and fitness. And, and again, all of these things, they're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. But when we look to them as the basis for our ultimate hope in this life, what we quickly discover is they're all just smoke and mirrors. It's all a charade. It's just a facade, empty promises that cannot ultimately satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. But you see, here's where the hope of Easter is different. The hope of Easter is a significant hope. It's a true hope. It's a hope with real meaning 
real power and real substance. It's a hope that we can be confident in because it's a living hope. A hope that's rooted in Jesus and all that he promised us. And it's a hope that's assured, genuine and authentic. Because Jesus has verified this hope by rising from the grave. It's like that great song, Because He Lives. I'd encourage you to go home and and search the song on the internet. It's a great classic song. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Friends, the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. Now, you might be thinking this morning, Pastor Jason, do you really believe all this resurrection stuff? I mean, come on, for real? A a dead man rising from the grave? Friends, I'll tell you this morning, I absolutely believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People sometimes ask me, Jason, why are you a Christian? And I'll tell you, the resurrection is way up there on the list. As I've looked at the evidence, as I've examined the claim of the resurrection, I've become more and more confident that there's no other explanation for what is claimed of Jesus than that he truly did rise from the grave. I'd encourage you, too, to examine the evidence. In fact, this morning, I'm going to encourage you to to test the claim of the resurrection. If you're taking notes this morning, or if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to to write this down in the back of your Bible, in the back cover. Four reasons we can be confident in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to test the claim of the resurrection. The T stands for this. The tomb. The tomb was empty. You know, it's interesting. When you study the history of the resurrection of Jesus... The tomb that Jesus was placed in after his crucifixion, it was a well-known tomb. It was a tomb owned by a prominent Jewish religious leader, a member of the Sanhedrin, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a well-known man, and and everyone would have known who he was and, and thereby where the tomb in which Jesus' body was placed really was. Everybody knew where the tomb was. It was a well-known tomb. Secondly, history tells us it was a well-guarded tomb. The Jews sealed Jesus' tomb with a a one- to two-ton rock so that no one on their own could, could move that rock out of the way. It would have taken many men. Not only that, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, ordered a guard to be placed at the tomb. So we have a well-known tomb, a well-guarded tomb. But we also discover it was a well-empty tomb three days later. You see, three days later, that tomb was empty. That tomb that everybody knew about. That tomb that had been guarded. That tomb was empty. And no one disagreed about that fact. It was never disputed. The Jews agreed the tomb was empty. The Romans agreed the tomb was empty. The Christians agreed the tomb was empty. What happened to the body? The empty tomb. The E, 
The E stands for eyewitness testimonies. The Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, writing only 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, tells us that there were many eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Paul, in this account, says there were actually over 500 eyewitnesses, and he names many of them here in this passage, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, friends, let me ask you a question. If you were making up a story, if you were fabricating a lie, why would you tell people that there are 500-plus eyewitnesses, many of them who would have still been alive at this time, 20 years later, and then name their names so that anybody who doubted your story could go and check on it. You, you don't do that kind of thing if you're making something up that's not real. And yet Paul unashamedly declares that there were these eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus alive. The S, the S stands for the spread of the early church. This, in my opinion, is one of the most incredible, powerful testaments to the resurrection. The rapid spread of the early church in a hostile Jewish culture occupied by the oppressive Roman government. There was nothing to gain from the rise of Christianity and yet history tells us that shortly after the death of Jesus, this movement began to spread like a wildfire. These Christians had nothing to gain and everything to lose. The Jews didn't want this religion to grow and spread. The Romans didn't want this religion to grow and spread. Everyone was against them, and yet this movement ultimately transformed the entire world. And then we have the T, the transformed lives. The stories of the disciples who, at Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, go into hiding Fearful for their own lives. They've just taken our master. We're next. And yet a few short weeks later, here they are boldly proclaiming Jesus as the risen Lord in the heart of Jerusalem without any fear. You have stories like James, Jesus' earthly brother. The Gospels tell us Jesus' family, his brothers, thought he was crazy when he was going around telling people, I and the Father are one when I was claiming to be God. They thought he was crazy. And yet James ultimately becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. How, how do you explain that? You have stories like Saul, the, the zealous Jewish persecutor of the Christian faith. Saul, who, who literally received permission from the government to arrest and persecute Christians and shut down churches, complicit in the death of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. How do you explain Saul ultimately becoming Paul, the greatest evangelist in the history of the Christian faith? Friends, all of these people, their testimony is rooted in the fact that they saw the risen Jesus. You see, friends, when we begin to examine the evidence, we can be confident that the hope of Easter is a genuine and significant hope, a hope with real meaning and power. Why? Because as Peter tells us this morning, it's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The third thing Peter reveals to us, the third promise, is that the hope of Easter is a splendid hope. It's a splendid hope. It's the hope of a promised inheritance. 
Many of you have probably received an inheritance over the years. One of the things we all know about inheritance is while they're often very exciting to, to receive things passed on from our family who have gone before us, the reality is no matter how large your inheritance is, the stuff of this world is transient. It ultimately fades away. And none of us, like those who have gone before us, can take it with us. But Peter tells us that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have an incredible inheritance. Peter says that we've been promised a, a true inheritance, an inheritance that is so great, according to the Apostle Peter, he could hardly find words to do it justice. In fact, in our passage this morning, all Peter can muster are three words. Three words that by way of contrast reveal the splendid hope of our inheritance. Peter describes it as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What incredible words. And how different from the stuff of this world. The, the Christian's inheritance is one that can never be destroyed. It can never be polluted. And it's not subject to decay. How is this even possible? Well, friends, it's possible because it's an eternal inheritance. It's an inheritance promised to us by Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Jesus, one of his great promises to his disciples in John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Isn't that a great promise, friends? Jesus rose from the grave, and he ascended into heaven, and he is there today preparing a place for us, an eternal inheritance, an eternal home in heaven. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us that to be absent from this body is to be at home with the Lord. To experience the incredible inheritance that Christ has promised us. See friends, for us as Christians, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, there's no fear in death. There's no great unknown. The grave is not the end for those of us who know Jesus. In fact, because of the splendid hope that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the follower of Jesus, friends, can actually taunt death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55, the Apostle Paul declares that because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave, Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Friends, let me ask you, do you know this splendid hope? Do you have the confidence this morning of your eternal inheritance in heaven? If you don't have that hope, you can. It comes by trusting in Jesus. 
Making him the Lord of your life, confessing your sins and asking him to come and cleanse you of your unrighteousness and to usher you into that experience of new life in him. And you too can have this splendid hope of an eternal inheritance. The fourth promise that Peter reveals to us here in our passage this morning, he says that the hope of Easter is a secure hope. It's a secure hope. And here Peter concludes this hope-filled passage this morning with one last great promise. And that promise is this. Everything that we're assured of as Christians is being held in heaven for us, guarded by God's power until that great and glorious day when Jesus Christ returns and he reveals all the blessings of our salvation in their fullness. Friends, just think about that. Just think about that. All all of the hopes that we have because of Easter today, we're only scratching the surface. Isn't that incredible to think about? When Jesus Christ returns at the end of time, when he returns, friends, and he is coming again, don't doubt that. When he returns We're going to experience all the blessings of our salvation in their fullness. I think this reality must have been what King David had in mind. When he wrote these words in Psalm 1611, King David says, You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Forevermore, friends. What does that mean? It means never-ending. Never-ending pleasures, fullness of joy in the presence of God. And friends, please note, as Peter tells us this morning, all of these promises, all of these things we've looked at today, they're all secure And they're being kept for us, Peter says, guarded by God in his power. That phrase in verse 5 in our passage this morning, are being guarded, that's one word in the Greek, phureo. It's a military word. It means to stand guard, to post a sentinel, to stand watch. And Peter uses this word to encourage us that God is standing sentinel over all that he's promised us. What a powerful image. I've had the privilege a couple times in my life of traveling to Washington, D.C. One of the incredible scenes that you can see there in Washington, D.C. is to visit Arlington National Cemetery and visit the tomb of the unknown soldier. The tomb of the unknown soldier where the remains of men and women, where where those who have died who weren't able to be identified are honored there. And friends, since 1937, for over 80 years, this tomb has been guarded by the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment known as the Old Guard. The Old Guard has stood watch over that tomb for 80 years, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, rain or shine through blizzards and hurricanes and 100 degree temperature, the old guard stands faithful. 
And when I think about the incredible commitment and dedication of those soldiers, friends, what overwhelms me this morning is to recognize that no matter how commendable these faithful soldiers are, these soldiers who guard our nation's most hallowed ground, their devotion is but a shadow of the watch care that God provides for his people. Peter tells us that we have a God in heaven who guards all the promises of our salvation. As followers of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that all that he's promised us, all of our hopes in him, are forever secure, being kept by the power of God. What a hope we have because of Easter. In Jesus Christ, we have a living hope for today, an eternal hope forevermore. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last days. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our hope that we have because of Easter. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation you purchased for us when Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And then he verified that reality and all that he promised us by rising from the grave. Because of you, Lord, we have true hope. We have a resurrection hope. We have the confidence that all that you've promised us are assured, guarded by your power in heaven until that great and glorious day when Jesus returns for us. Lord, I pray that these promises would sustain us today, would encourage us today, would give us a renewed sense of joy over all that is ours because of Easter. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. from the grave by name You called me out of all my shame I see the old has passed away The new has come Now I have resurrection
Amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us for our Easter worship this morning. I pray it was a blessing to you. And I want to leave you with these great words from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Happy Easter, everyone.